podcast one production. Hey guys, you're listening to Crappy to Happy. I'm Cass Dunn. I'm a clinical and coaching psychologist, a mindfulness meditation teacher and author of the Crappy to Happy books. In this series, we look at all of the factors that might be making you feel crappy and give you the tools and the techniques that will help you to overcome them. In each episode, I introduce you to interesting, inspiring, intelligent people who are experts in their field, and my hope is that they will help you feel less crappy and more happy. This episode of Crappy to Happy contains a little adult language, so if that's not for you, you might want to switch to another episode, and if you've got little ears around, you might want to put in some earbuds. So today we are speaking to Mark Manson, who is the best-selling author, most famous for his book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, and more recently, his new book, Everything is Fucked, a book about hope. He describes himself as a writer who gives advice that doesn't suck and says some people think he's an idiot, whereas other people say he saved their lives. Mark and I unpacked the paradox of progress, what he hopes his books will give to readers, and why you've been doing happiness all wrong. Mark, such a pleasure to have you on the Crappy to Happy show. It's Thank- good to be here. <laughs> uh, look, I think that you need no introduction, really. Your first book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, if people haven't read it, they have certainly heard of it. And it was a, a an astonishing success, right? Yeah. Yeah. How many copies? Especially down here. Uh, yeah. Total worldwide, I think it's 9 million. It's amazing. And then I think down here it's 1 million. Which- oh, w- wow. So we're a huge, huge... Proportion? Yeah, I mean, well, it's a country of what, 25 million? Yeah. So it's like one out of, yeah, yeah, one out of 25 Australians has it, which is nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely nuts. <laughs> Everybody has certainly heard of it. And now you've obviously just followed up with the second one, Everything is Fucked, a book about hope. Yes. And uh, I have read both of them mm-hmm. and obviously quite, so have quite a lot of Australians. But for anybody who hasn't, I just thought maybe we should start with just uh, is it possible to give a little summary of what, sure. what what the books are about and how they're different? And then we'll talk more in more detail. Uh, I, I joke... My 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 joke elevator pitch is that I write self help for people who hate self help. Um, I I like to think of it as kind of like a pessimistic self help. You know, mo- most personal development material is like it's very positive. It's very idealistic. It's like, hey, you can do anything. Just believe in yourself. You know, and I I you know I I've blogged for ten or twelve years, and I spent a lot of time you know reading psychological research and. I just I think humans are kind of awful, <laughs> and uh, and so I wanted to write a self help book that that kind of that was the starting point. Is like, hey, we're awful, and let's try to be a little bit less awful. How about that? <laughs> I like that, and it's very clear to me that you have read a lot of psychological, um, you know, research, and mm. that you know a lot about psychology. And I really, um, I, what I liked about the first book is that there's a lot of psychology in there and yeah. you have expressed it in a way that a lot of people will really who perhaps like you said wouldn't normally be into self-help can really grab a hold of those ideas yeah. and relate to them. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And so the second book goes a lot deeper, doesn't it? Yes. Can you do you want to talk a little bit and we'll talk a bit about that? I I think um yeah, it, it's a denser read, it's a more intellectual read. The fir- the success of the first book gave me a little bit of an identity crisis. Uh, Can we talk about that for a second? Sure, absolutely. Um, Which then kind of inspired the second book. And so I think the second book, some things are taken much further in in certain ways. Um, And whether that's a good or bad thing, I have no idea. 
Um, I really enjoyed the second book. Oh, I really you. liked it. Yes. Thank you. It, it's it's interesting. The second book, I knew I was going to. It's a harder. It's a more difficult read. It's a more challenging read. But I think there's more fruit there, and so I kind of. You know, when when you have a huge runaway success like the first one, there's this pressure to like reproduce it, like just just copy and paste and do the next one. You know, yeah. <laughs> let's just let's all cash more checks. Um, and I I really didn't want to do that, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I I very much uh, looked for ways to both challenge myself but also challenge the reader in new ways, mm. um, understanding that I would probably alienate some people who love the first book and, and being okay with that. Have you had much feedback so far? Um, yeah. So it's interesting. I would say maybe 20, 25% of the fans love the second one even more than yes. the first one. Yeah. Uh, and then there's probably about 20, 25% who are like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Just rewrite the first one. <laughs> you had a good thing going, Mark. Why did you mess it up? <laughs> <laughs> but but overall people like it. It 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 it's just it's not having it doesn't seem to be having you know, like subtle art had this viral impact. Yeah. Um I think it was so different when it came out and and so kind of in your face um that people really wanted to talk about it. The second one is more um, you know, sit by yourself in a room and stare out the window for <laughs> A few hours and think about your life. Think about what you think about what you've done. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it is a bit like that. It is. It is, and I think that it it's. I like that about it. It challenges us. Uh, challenges us all to look at our own. Uh, I don't know our position about a lot of things and the way we live our lives. And yeah. I want to get to talking about that. Sure. So the main message. Um, uh, of the first book, which you extend on, I think, in the second book, is to and. F- for a show called Crappy to Happy, and I've written books called Crappy to Happy, to stop trying to chase happiness. Mm -hmm. If the definition of happiness is to never feel uncomfortable, to never feel discomfort. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, and basically that pain is the universal concept. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. So I, the argument I make is that and and I make it in both books. I think I, I I drill deeper into it into this in the second book. But it's basically that there's no there's no kind of permanent state of satisfaction. Right. Like dissatisfaction is a built in component of our psychology. Mm-hmm. No matter how good things get, no matter how great your relationship is, how much money you make, like whatever, you there's going to be dissatisfaction and. Uh, and there's going to be certain letdowns and pains and disappointments that come along with that. And so, um, for me, and this is kind of what I would like, this is why it's a pessimistic form of self-help is that instead of running from the pain or running from the dissatisfaction, like I, the more important question is, is finding dissatisfaction that is worth having. Yes. Um, another way to put it is, is find, find the crappy that has a good reason for it. Exactly. So it's, and I think the phrase that I've heard you use and others use is like, what is it that you're willing to struggle for? Yes. What matters enough? Yes. That you're willing to tolerate the discomfort? Absolutely. Yes. And, and it's, you know, I, I rip on happiness a lot, but a lot of that is, uh, I just feel like, I feel like happiness as a concept has been, it's become a cartoon of, uh, 
you know, what we should be talking about. You know, it, it's just this very kind of flippant, like, you know, do X, Y, Z and you'll be happy, you know, type of thing where it's like, no, the, the human condition is very complicated. Happiness is, um, you can be happy for horrible reasons. You can be happy for great reasons. Um, it, and so there, there are a lot more uh, philosophical discussions that need to happen around happiness. For sure. And some of that is just about your definition of happiness. I tell people, because I've had people have a go at me too, about you mm. selling happiness. Like, yeah. and, and what I say is I sell people what they want, but then I give them what they need. Sure, of course. Um, and the, one of the first chapters in my book is if you expect to feel happy all the time, you're screwed. Bad luck. Because, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and I talk about the idea, and you talk about this as well, you know, this idea of finding meaning. And one really good example, I don't think you haven't had kids yet. No. no. But think about parenting. Yeah. Probably some of the shittiest experiences, like the most painful, the most uncomfortable. Oh, absolutely. But the most joyful and meaningful. And that's just one example of the ways that we tolerate discomfort in the service of something. Yeah. That matters. Yeah, it's funny because there's a there was a famous study that came out like 10 years ago and I remember it, there were headlines and all these publications where it found that uh, new parents of newborns are the unhappiest yes. demographic <laughs> like in society. I believe it. <laughs> and so and the articles were like, so scientists say that you shouldn't have kids because you won't be happy. And I'm like, that is the stupidest conclusion <laughs> you could like exactly. if there's anything that shows that happiness is a poor metric to measure everything by, you know, like that's a perfect example. Because if you if you talk to any parent, they're like, it's the most important thing I've ever done. It's the best thing I've ever done. And yeah, it's miserable sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, any relationship, really. Absolutely. You know, um, and you know, there's lots of other examples. I just think that's that one really kind of yeah. covers it well. But there's lots of other things. It, it's interesting. I, I was talking to um, a friend like a week ago about this. Like it's the original... Uh, like the definition of happiness, um, originally it had two separate definitions. So like if you dig back into like ancient philosophy, like Aristotle said there are two forms of happiness, like hedonia and eudaimonia. And like the the hedonia is like pleasure based, yeah. you know, it's like feeling good, like drinking a beer and um, buying a new car or something. Like it's very pleasure simplistic. Um, and superficial and it's very temporary. And then the other form of happiness is like this deeper fulfillment that you have this deeper purpose. You have this, this struggle or meaning behind your actions that it will sustain you over a long period of time. And if you look at, uh, you know, a lot of people, so like in the US we have in baked into our like constitution and declaration of independence is the right life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. So it's a huge part of American culture. Right. It's this pursuit of happiness. Um, but really like what they were referring to is that that second more fulfillment based, you know, it's, it's basically like a modern translation. It would be you have the right to life, liberty in the pursuit of purpose, yes. the pursuit of finding something important to yourself. Um, but I think through like commercialism and advertising and consumerism and everything, it, that's gotten caricatured into, you know, feeling good all the feeling time, feeling good constantly, mm. uh, which is the wrong approach. Can we talk about the paradox of progress? The wealthier we get, the unhappier we are. That's one of the points in yeah. your second book. Yeah, yeah. It's it's um, it's interesting because. There's a lot of research 
and and a lot of it's very recent that's coming out that's finding you know there's talk of like a mental health crisis um rates of anxiety depression suicide um i'm not sure about here but like in the u.s drug overdoses like Mm -hmm. it's becoming these are all growing problems and what's fascinating is is these things are happening in some of the wealthiest and most comfortable parts of the country but also the world you know if you look at uh rates of suicide you know they they track pretty well to how developed and safe a country is yeah um there's also a lot of like global studies on on a sense of meaning or purpose and it's the wealthiest countries report the lowest sense of meaning and purpose in their lives the wealthiest countries have the highest rates of pessimism i think in the u.s it's only six percent of people think that the country is going to be better off in 20 years than it is today um and it's so it's it, there's this weird thing where it's like the the safer and more comfortable we all get the more we start freaking out about stuff um and i think that the starting point for the new book although there's a lot of psych personal psychology in it was very much like what the hell is going on yeah um like why what is it about and it, and it kind of like i think on an intuitive level it kind of makes sense like if you're if you're like a subsistence farmer in india uh it's very easy to be motivated. Like you, you, you need food, <laughs> you know? So it's like you, you wake up every day and there's no abstract question of like, what is the point of my life and what should I work on today? It's like, no, you gotta go get food. Like yeah, you're, yeah. <laughs> there's, you're, you're, or you're going to starve. Um, whereas when you're sitting in like a nice air conditioned apartment with 500 shows on Netflix and 25 different types of food can be delivered to you, from a push of a button, mm. um, this question of like, what, what is the value of my life? What is the purpose of my life? What should I hope for? Like these, are, these actually become very difficult questions to answer because it's almost like the, the amount of opportunity and uh, in possibility is paralyzing. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? It's. I was just thinking about the whole, you know, Maslow's hierarchy yep. where you have your basic needs met and yep. only then can you move up to the next one, like when you're safe and when you're fed and when you, you know, then there's love and sex and whatever. And so almost like when you get to the peak of the self-actualization, yeah. there's this existential crisis. Totally. And it, and it's, I think, what's interesting too is is if you think about those higher levels of, of the hierarchy, like the belonging, the self-esteem and the self-actualization, like those are difficult personal questions that you have to answer for yourself. And I think modern life complicates those things. You know, it's when you're being blasted by 500 different messages every time you go online, um, it's hard to know what you want to belong to. It's hard to know what you should be proud of. Um, And so in, in a weird way, I think it's the connectivity of the 21st century it has made it more difficult to define ourselves and define what we want for ourselves. And you talk also, again, you just reminded me then about, which I thought was really interesting, the difference between freedom and variety. Yeah. When people think they have more freedom and all they've actually got is more variety. Do you want to just talk sure. about that a bit? Yeah, this is, I think this is another, I'm, I don't know how, how much this resonates down here, but in, in the US there's, you know, we're Americans. We love freedom, you know. Yes. We got our guns. We got our beers. Yep. We got our freedom. Uh, 
it's a huge part of our culture, and and I think the the consumerism is a, is a big part of that as well. And um, I think implicit in that kind of love of freedom is I think people mistake having more options as being more free, and I think that's true up to a certain extent. So, um, you know, if you don't like, if you're if a kid has no school that they can go to giving them one school that they can go to is an increase in freedom if a kid Mm -hmm. only has one school they can go to and you give them an option like two or three that's an increase in freedom if you give them an option of like 50 uh at some point you're not increasing their freedom anymore in fact you're actually you're creating more uh anxiety in in uncertainty around whatever choice they make. And so I think there's kind of, there's like a bandwidth limit in our, in our brain in terms of the amount of options that we're able to comprehend and handle. And I think once we exceed that limit, more options actually reduces freedom because it, we no longer- It's long, paralyzing. Yeah, because we no longer feel confident in our own choices. Yeah. And, and we no, no longer, we start experiencing FOMO and anxiety that we didn't pick the right thing and that maybe this was better. And you know what, I, I, can't, I can't decide, it's too overwhelming. Um, and so the argument I make in the book is that I think we need to reconceptualize freedom as it's not having more options. It's, uh, it's choosing to limit ourselves to less, like very consciously being like, okay, I could do these 20 things, but I'm going to focus on these two. Like that's the new kind of 21st century form of freedom. That coming back to the idea of knowing what matters, like choosing your values and then making your decisions Knowing what to give a fuck about. Knowing what to give a fuck about. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because it's it's um it is paralyzing, you know. And it's like, I think everybody, I think this is part of what made the first book resonate so much is is that everybody f- is feeling this, but nobody. It's hard. I think, you know, not to pat myself on the back, but maybe I'm one of the first people that's kind of putting language to it. Of like, people know they care about this one thing. But there's so much other stuff going on in their life. They're all, you know, they every time they open their phone, all the people they're talking to, every time they turn on the, t- the TV, that they feel pulled away from that one thing they care about constantly, mm. and they don't they don't realize it, and and it causes a lot of stress and despair because they feel like they they're incapable of focusing on that one thing they care about, um, and so in subtle art. I subtle art was very much about figure out what that one thing you care about is, become conscious of that. And then this new book, at least the part two of this new book is very much about, okay, how do we cut out all the crap? How do we like limit ourselves, um, limit our exposure to all the noise and nonsense that's going on all the time? Mark, there is a quote in the second book, which is that your identity will stay your identity until a new experience acts against it. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me what you mean by that? Sure. So, you know, we we love to believe that we could think our our way to being different. You know, it's we we love to think that man, if I just read this book, or if I just learn, you know, what to eat. I'll be a different person. And it doesn't work that way because uh, basically, you know, who we are is is essentially just what we value. Um, and so if you want to value different things, you can't think your way to new values. You have to experience, yes. have experiences 
that promote those new values in your mind. Um, and the nature of those experiences, whenever you experience something that's kind of contrary to your current values, it is by definition stressful and uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, so it, it's like if I, you know, like let's say I'm going to use like a really silly superficial example, but like let's say I struggle to uh, get up in the morning and I decide, you know, you know what, I'm going to be the type of person that wakes up at 5 a.m. every day. Well, I can read books about sleep patterns, sleep habits, morning routines. I can listen to podcasts. I can do whatever. None of those things are actually going to get me up in the morning. I have to have the experience of getting up in the morning. And because that experience is contrary to who I already am, it's going to be a painful experience. By definition, it will be a painful experience. Uh, and this is true of everything. If you want to you know, if you want to emotionally let go of a partner or if you want to change careers, like you have to seek out contrary experiences to your current, uh, to your current values. And because those are contrary experiences, they will be uncomfortable. They will hurt. They will be difficult. You will freak out. And, uh, and so by, by that, like this is why I, 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 I shit on like the, the kind of the airy fairy woo-woo flavors of self-help, you know, of like this idea that you can uh, walk in a room and uh, jump and cheer and dance and then come out three hours later a new person. Like it's, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> like personal change is a, I think in subtle art, I call it a, a contact sport. Like it is, it's ugly. It's, uh, it's, it's dirty. It's, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's, you have relapses. Um, you have self-doubt. Um, you lose your confidence, but this is part of it. Like you have to live through that um, to come out the other side, a different person. Yes, completely agree. And I guess going back to the original point, if you're not willing to tolerate that discomfort, yes. you're never going to have that change. You're never going to make those important changes. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It's um, there's a certain tolerance. Th- tolerance of discomfort or tolerance of pain uh that's required Mm. to make those changes and and i think that's why i mean it's interesting when you look at habit research you you find like there's there's this book called power of habit yeah by by charles duhigg and it's one of the things he talks about that's really remarkable is that you have a lot of people who you know their life will be kind of a mess and once they get the the first big change like it kind of creates this domino effect. So you, so you'll get somebody who's like a couch potato, unemployed, no confidence or whatever. And they manage to start jogging and they develop a jogging habit. And suddenly they stop smoking, they get a job, they like get their finances together. Like suddenly everything else starts falling into place. And I think a, a big reason for that is that it's not only are you just taking up jogging, but you are, you're building that, pain tolerance. You're building that that ability to weather through the uncertainty and the the self-doubt and the discomfort um, so that attacking those other habits and those other behavioral changes no longer feel impossible to you. And I think in, in underneath all of that is knowing why, mm-hmm. right? No, like knowing why that change matters. Like yeah. Why do you want to be a jogger? 
Why do sure. you, because in the space that I work in too, like people will say, I want to do this differently. I want to break this habit. I want to eat better. I want to lose weight. Yeah. Why? Because you're not going to yeah. do that hard work and tolerate that discomfort unless there's something that's much more important than those temporary feelings of yes discomfort. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's a values question. It, yeah, totally. And if, and if your why is like, you know, I want to fit into my swimsuit <laughs> next month. You know, it's, Doesn't, it's, it's not, not sustainable. It's not going to be <laughs> very sustainable. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, the why has to go much deeper than that, you know, and it's, it, I think it's why you see um, people who have like real serious health scares. Um, like I had a friend who had a stroke at a very young age, um, like four or five years ago. And man, it's just everything snapped in the shape because mm. it's you're confronted with that mortality. It's like, mm. wow, I, I can't, I can't get away with like staying up drinking the three a.m. a yeah. bunch. You know, it's like I I've got to take care of myself. Um, it's the difference too between because what you said is so true. We we are not lacking information. Mm. No, if anything, we have too much. Exactly, <laughs> but the thing that makes the difference is that well, it, it's the it's the why, but it's yeah. it's an insight that comes from sometimes unexpected places, but it's an insight that shifts something fundamentally. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah, and that's yeah. what that's what gets people to do things differently. And and it, and it, I think that the, the why, the important thing is that the why it comes from something deeper than simply, you know what people are going to think about you, which is, I think, where most people's why yeah. comes from most of the time. It's it's like, all right, I'm going to do this so my coworkers are impressed, or I'm going to do this to to because it's, you know, my parents will approve of me. Um, like that's a never-ending hamster wheel. Like you 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 can never scratch that itch completely. Like no. there's got to be something deeper going on uh, to motivate a lot of this stuff. And I think this all also goes back to, we haven't really talked about it just yet, but I think this also goes back to your whole idea. You spent a lot of time talking about the difference between the thinking brain and the feeling brain. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I've got a nice little metaphor. It's funny. So the second chapter of the book, I I create this metaphor about the thinking brain, the feeling brain. They're like, they're like a disgruntled couple (laughs) on a road trip. And, uh, and that road trip's called your life. And um, <laughs> I basically just see how long I can keep this ridiculous metaphor going. And um, it works well, though. It, it did work well. Yeah. It did work well. Um, so basically, you know, if you if you look at kind of how our psychology is constructed, we have a thinking brain, a feeling brain. Feeling brains, motions, impulses, desires. Um, very primitive. Very like low, yeah. right? Lizard brain. Yes. Yeah. It's unconscious. Yeah. Um, or most of it's unconscious. And then the thinking brain is, is very much our conscious, rational, like, um, you know, it, it thinks ahead, thinks ab- abstractly about the future and the past and who we are and all these things. Um, you know, most of our assumptions are that our thinking brain is, if our life is a car, our assumptions tend to be that our, our thinking brain is driving and our feeling brain is like this obnoxious, person in the passenger seat who's like screaming and pointing out the window and you and you're like shut up feeling brain like <laughs> adults are driving 
I know where I'm going. Um, and, and I think when we talk about the subjects of like self-discipline and habits and willpower, like they're always pr- portrayed through this idea that your thinking brain that like you, you intellectually know what you should do. And so you just have to exert uh, enough force and power on your emotions to uh, get them to shut up long enough for you to go do it. And uh, it turns out that this is like, not only is it a wrong assumption, but it's, it's actually very damaging in many ways because really what's happening in our brain is the feeling brain's driving and the thinking brain is sitting in the passenger seat with the map. And it doesn't matter how good your map is, the feeling brain's going to go where it wants to go. So true. <laughs> and anybody who's sat, you know, I'll use myself as an example. I've probably read like 15 books on fitness and nutrition <laughs> And, um, you know, I still order the burger and fries when I check in the hotel <laughs> yep. each night. So yep. it's, uh, you know, my thinking brain's got the map. So Map's true. not the issue. <laughs> it's so true. You just reminded me too of something that we learn in like sales and selling. It's, it's the, you purchase with your um, emotions yes. and you justify yes. with your Absolutely. thinking brain. I hope you're enjoying season four of the show. And hey, I would love for you to check out my brand new YouTube channel where I'm sharing even more tips on how you can feel less crappy and more happy. It's youtube.com forward slash Cass Dunn. So come over, check it out. I'd love for you to subscribe. And if you haven't already taken my free seven day happiness challenge, you can sign up for that at castdunn.com forward slash happiness. Mark, in your experience, why do you think that it, it is that some people are much more inclined to to move towards those challenges, to put mm. themselves out there and embrace those challenges and that discomfort and other people run, do anything to avoid? I think, so some people never, never get that experience early on that pursuing challenge or discomfort is healthy, is, is actually helps them. Um, so if you think of somebody like grows up in like a very positive environment, loving family, all this stuff, like if you like, uh, one of the things I talk about, it's like basically what good parenting is, is you give your kids modest challenges that you're pretty sure they can overcome because once the kid takes on that challenge and overcomes it, it builds confidence, it builds self-reliance, it mm. helps them develop their emotional maturity, all these things. Um, if you grow up in a really fucked up environment where the, my goodness. <laughs> my stomach's grumbling. <laughs> Apologies. I had a half a slice of pizza for breakfast. Spe- speaking of <laughs> burger and fries. Uh, I, did, I ordered pizza last night. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, if you're somebody who grows up in like a really fucked up environment, um, as a kid, like the challenges put in front of you are way too big for you to handle. And I think that that's you that could be like a very simplistic way of describing what trauma is, is that it's it's challenges and pain that are way past your ability to cope and deal with them. And so people who experience that, what they learn is that challenge and pain is dangerous. Avoid at all costs. And, and again, thinking brain, feeling brain, you know, they can read, they can go to therapy, they can read books, they can understand intellectually 
that they need to be challenging themselves. They need to get off the couch and do this and that. Uh, their thinking brain can have the map completely laid out, but their feeling brain, because it sustained those tra traumatic experiences, will just have such an aversion to any sort of uh, discomfort um, that it will be incredibly difficult for them to, to actually do it. Yeah. I'm glad that you mentioned that too, because I think that is another um, criticism of some of the more popular self-help, you mm -hmm. can do anything kind of messaging. Because yeah. there are some people who really are wired, not that they can never overcome that, sure. but they certainly have a lot further to go in overcoming those experiences and rewiring that. Absolutely. And, and I, I like to think of, I mean, I think of it in a very Buddhist way which is that we all have our own journey. We all have our own path. And some of our paths intersect and combine for a while, but they usually split off at some point. And um, some people's paths are much longer and deeper. Um, and I think when you look at, like, say, mental health issues, people, um, their paths are very different. You know, So somebody who struggles a lot with anxiety is going to have a very different path than somebody who, say, struggles with apathy or depression. Um, and so this kind of one-size-fits-all model, I think, is, is not only uh, disingenuous, but I, I think it can actually, it can be dangerous. Yes. Um, especially when you're, you, you're talking about like deeper mental health issues. And that's, that's one thing that I'm always very adamant about in my interviews and when I do press and when I'm on stage is like, I tell people, I'm like, look, I don't have all the answers. Uh, and I'm also like, I'm often... I often get asked things that is just out of my pay grade. Mm. You know, people, um, I did an event like a couple of weeks ago where somebody got up and she was like, I suffer from bipolar disorder and I've, you know, tried to kill myself. And, and I just looked at her, I'm like, I'm not the person you should be talking to. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad, I'm glad you like my books, but like, I'm not qualified for this. And uh, well, can I just say sure. that I am qualified, and I still would not answer a question from an audience member off a stage on a Facebook message. In oh, a, absolutely! Because I get them too. Yeah, and I am a psychologist, and I have to say to people, this is not. No. This is not the space. This is not. I would lose my registration if I attempted to. Uh, yeah. Right. You know, like it's unethical. Absolutely, and it, and it's. I think people, you know, the the classic therapeutic context of like one-on-one -on -one in a private room, confidentiality, like the meeting every week, you know, like that exists for a reason yes. because these are long-term things that you require a relationship with a person to, to, to help you cope and, and overcome a lot of these issues. Yeah. And, and yeah, the, the self-help industry in general just kind of completely ignores that. Mm. Um, and we have a thing, you know, in psychology, you know, where there is a thing called psychoeducation, which is this like sharing general information, much that like you would find in a book or on a, on a blog or a podcast, which is general information, which is broadly applicable, yes. but it is no replacement, yes. no substitute yeah. for individuals. Yeah, I, I, I always tell people, I say like, I'm, I'm a mild problem expert. <laughs> so like, you know, if you got fired, girlfriend dumped you, like I'm your guy. But um, if you got sh serious shit, like serious, like don't. Not, not your guy. No, I'm not your guy. <laughs> no, fair enough too. So Mark, in the second book, mm -hmm. um, there's a lot in there about, there are a lot of problems 
in the world at the moment. Yeah. Um, and a lot of those solutions would require us to be united in our approach to, to dealing with them. I'm talking about, you know, big things like there's climate change and there's yeah. all sorts of stuff going on. We seem to be more divided, particularly politically, mm -hmm. um, than we ever have been. Why do you think that is? This is something that's bothered me and I've spent a lot of time reading and thinking about, especially because I've noticed it in my own career. You know, I've, I've written, I've blogged and published online for 12 years now. And I've always gotten, I've always gotten criticized, but like the first eight or nine years of my career, those criticisms were like, you know, Hey, stop using the F word or like, you're an idiot. You know, you, you just kind of generic trolley internet stuff. And like the last couple years, the criticisms have been incredibly politicized. So, you know, I get called racist, homophobic, socialist, communist, fascist, like you name it, I've been called it. Wow. Uh, and my writing's not even political. <laughs> and so it I've this it's a it's a subject that's very close to to home for me. And I've and I've been researching and thinking about it a lot. I mean, the the co conclusion I basically came down to is I think it's it's a combination of two things. The first one is what what we were talking about earlier in terms of uh people are the more information you give people, the more it actually complicates their ability to define themselves and and fulfill some of those higher needs on Maslow's hierarchy. So it's harder to know what I should be proud of. Um when anything I, I can do, there's like an 11-year-old on the internet that's better than me at it. Uh, it's hard to know who I want to belong to when every single group that I'm aware of is constantly being criticized and attacked. Um, and so I think the, the, the easiest way to kind of create an identity for yourself is to jump into one of these us versus them dichotomies. Yes. Um, it's, a, it's like the the bare minimum easiest human function that we kind of fall back to when we don't really know what else to do. It's like, well, everything's confusing and seems threatening and I'm anxious all the time. So I'm going to find a bunch of people who seem like they're how, the way I am and it's going to be us against the world. And I think we're all kind of unconsciously like nudging ourselves into one of those corners. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's, I think the first issue is just, it's that human bandwidth problem that I talked about earlier. The second issue is, I think, just the nature of the internet. Unfortunately, it creates incentives. So, like, let's say you write a really powerful, profound article and it goes viral and it gets tons of attention and people are like, oh my God, Cass is amazing. The easiest, the, the lowest hanging fruit, let's say I'm, an, I'm another writer. The lowest hanging fruit for me as another writer who wants the same attention you're getting is to just shit all over whatever you're saying. Mm -hmm. Because then now my article is going to go viral because everybody who read yours uh -huh. and liked it is going to read mine. And so then people just start instinctively picking sides because everything is contradicted. So no matter what you commit to, um, if that commitment, if that if that position or that identity starts to become validated and become popular, it's now in everybody else's interest to attack that and contradict it so they can siphon off that validation and popularity themselves. Mm. And so it just creates this incredibly fragmented and contentious culture um, 
where all of the incentives are lined up to not cooperate, to not listen to each other, to not have good faith towards the other person. And then you combine that with a bunch of increasingly lonely people with identity crises. And uh, I think you get our modern political situation. Mark, I want to pick up on something you said there, because that is so true, particularly, you know, I've got a podcast and I've got books out and there is that it's a fear that mm. I'll put something out there and somebody's going to judge me, criticize me. Now, some people care more about that than others. You yeah. said you've got a lot of people who just told you that you're stupid and that didn't bother you, but it it does it does bother a lot of people. Yeah. Like, and everybody's everybody's a critic. Yeah. And there's a huge platform now for people to jump all over. So, how do we? What do we do about that? So, there, I think there's two things here. I mean, one is just anything you do. There's there's going to some people are not going to like it, and I think that. That is just a fundamental fact of doing anything in the world um, that we all have to overcome to a certain extent. And I know as a creative person, um, you know, putting my work into the world, like it, it took me a while to kind of come to terms with that. Like, look, you know, no, not everybody's going to love my book. Some people are going to really dislike it. That's fine. Some people are going to think I'm stupid. That's fine. Um, that's one level. I think that the second level that is starting to happen today is that there's this moral criticism yeah. that is becoming commonplace. So it's not just that somebody dislikes my writing, it's that I am a fascist. Mm. Uh, it's not just that somebody thinks disagrees with me, it's they think I'm uh, a liar and uh, knowingly exploiting people. Um, and that's becoming much more commonplace today. And so that... That to me is a social issue. Like there's something, what is it about our culture today that is making it okay to, to moralize everything? Because I don't think we want to moralize everything. No. <laughs> I think we need to, we should be very careful about what we moralize. Um, but for whatever reason, you know, the, the nature of, the internet and technology right now is it's it's pushing us towards moralizing everything. I see that a lot too. Mm. And um, I do, I think that is such a big problem today. And reading your book um, really gave me a kind of a pause to reflect on myself because we do, we moralize people for their political. Like sure. We no longer just disagree politically. We yeah. moralize people for their political preferences. Yes. Um, we are in such, and not just politics, you know, religion, there, there's a lot of that us versus them. Do you think we seem to be losing the ability to respectfully disagree, to be able to hold space for a bunch of different viewpoints? Either you're right or you're wrong. And if you're yes. wrong, you're a loser and you're an awful person and you're a bigot and you're, yes, you know? Absolutely. And the internet, I think, you, would you agree this that social media has particularly exacerbated that? Oh, totally. Yeah. Because it's it's people don't even read the article <laughs> half the time. <laughs> they they read no. the title and they're just like, ah, this journalist is a bigot. You know, <laughs> it's it's uh yeah, it's a huge problem. And and it's um what's interesting too is you know, I think it's a misconception. People think that we're becoming more polarized. What I when I was doing research for this book, like I, what fascinated me is that we're actually, at least in the U.S., we're not more polarized than we were 30, 40 years ago. It's what's changed is the moralization. So mm. in the 1980s, conservatives still were pro-life and wanted small government and, you know, whatever. Uh, liberals still wanted more welfare programs and whatever. Uh, 
it's just they were willing to talk to each other. They didn't think the other side was evil and like fucking everybody over. And today, that like that's what's changed is mm-hmm. that there's this moralization of different political viewpoints. Um, I think so. I think there's a few things that we need to be aware of and we need to be doing to kind of attack this. But um, I think one of them is is simply uh, reprioritizing face to face engagement with mm. people, especially people that we wouldn't normally engage with or or talk to. Um, I think part of the problem of, you know, social media has a lot of problems in and of itself, but I think there there are some unnoticed side effects, which is just that people don't go out and hang out with random strangers that, w- that they wouldn't normally meet as often. Um, people stick within the same groups, that they're comfortable in. Mm. And this kind of comes back to like seeking discomfort. So Mark, what I'm really interested to know is like for you in writing the book in coming around and speaking on stages, like what is the message that you really want people Mm. to take away? What do you want people to go and do differently or think about differently? I think I would sum it up with the goal for most of human history was to do more, accumulate more, learn more, just more, more, more. I think in the, 21st century, given the abundance of every of all the information opportunities, the name of the game is finding less, finding your less. You know what? Mm. What are the handful of things that you trust that are important to you and that matter to you, and then getting good at cutting out all the distractions. And again, it's on a personal level. I think it's it's the only way to combat a lot of you know the kind of the epidemics of distraction, anxiety, FOMO, a lot of these things that we're seeing. Um, it's it's the only way to kind of maintain your productivity uh, in purpose in the face of all the noise going on. Um, and then more socially, it's, it's, it's I mean, I think if, if the incentives are lined up in our culture to uh, radicalize us, cut us off from each other, um, take like double down on our views and not listen to each other, then we need to opt out of that system. Mm. You know, like get off social media. Not You don't have to get off completely, but like cut out your use. Um, read less news. Only read things that are really important or that are well-researched. Um, go outside, see people face-to-face, join groups, meet people, find people who, who have different views and like hang out with them. Go get a beer or something. You know, like it's... It sounds so old-fashioned and basic, but like I, it really is. Uh, I think it really is an issue. It's yeah. it's people aren't uh, getting that classic face-to-face contact and sense of community that they they once had, and um, we need to try to get back to that. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's a great point. And I think for so long we've talked about, we know the importance of social connection and belonging. And and we've often said, you know, well, you know, find people with really similar values and maybe we need to shift it back in the other direction a little bit and find people who, well, not that they don't have different values, but different, but different opinions. Sure. And, and get back to that willingness to be able to. Because we could have the same, we could have the same value, but just disagree on how to get there. How to get there. Exactly. Mark, I so appreciate you making the time to come on. This has been a really, really great discussion and I know our listeners are going to love it. Thanks for having me. If you haven't read Mark's books, they are available at all good bookstores or you can find more of his work online at markmanson.net. 
my new book, Crappy to Happy, Love What You Do, is out in all good bookstores. So if you want to find more happy in work, go and check it out. Coming up on the next episode is Amy Shepherd from the band Shepherd, who is taking the world by storm with her Kiss My Fat Ass movement, encouraging women everywhere to love the skin they're in. Crappy to Happy is a Podcast One Australia production, produced by Dave Zwolenski and with audio by Darcy Thompson. For more great podcasts, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the app.